You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This month, we look at an online tool for diagnosing and providing treatment for hemianopia. That's the visual impairment which can follow stroke or brain injury. Just looking at stroke alone as the cause, a persistent hemianopia complicates stroke in about 10% of cases. So that means in the UK there's somewhere between 10 and 15,000 new cases of hemianopia per year. Also, measuring sensory nerve conduction. Tom Sears relates the beginnings of the technique. Many of the people, even in neurology or in neuroscience then, had worked on these techniques, uh, which were very secret during the war. So the technology, the uh, instrumentation, was very much available. It was too expensive to buy, so many people in London would go to Tottenham Court Road, where they could buy for a song um, the bits of of, of equipment. But before we get on to those, a vision for the future of epilepsy research. So I've come down to King's College London today to meet Mark Richardson, who's Professor of Epilepsy here, to talk about his review on brain models for epilepsy. So good morning, Mark. Thanks for talking to me. Good morning. Thanks very much for coming over. You start your review by saying that our understanding of epilepsy is going to radically change in the next decade. Why do you think our current thinking is soon going to be outdated? Much of what we think about epilepsy at the moment is still based on concepts that were emerging in the 1980s. Particularly, the fundamental way that we look at epilepsy clinically is to divide it into so-called focal-onset epilepsy and generalised epilepsy. We know that is not correct. There's plenty of evidence to refute that. So over the last few years, there's been a commission of the International League Against Epilepsy trying to devise a a better approach, a better classification scheme. It's proven really very difficult to move that new classification process forward because there's a very substantial evidence gap between what we know about underlying brain mechanisms at the micro scale on the one hand and what we know about clinical phenomenology on the other hand. And it's inevitable that once we understand those links our concepts of epilepsy will be fundamentally altered. And and you write that you think systems neuroscience and and studying large-scale brain networks is is key to producing a new classification and and taking our understanding forward. Why why do you think this? There there are several reasons for proposing that. We, We know from experimental evidence in epilepsy that there's a very wide range of things that you can do to experimental animal models and to brain slices in vitro that can cause seizures to start. So there's a huge range of underlying microscale mechanisms for seizure onset. And that range of mechanisms is really bewildering. On the other hand, we know that despite this multiplicity of mechanisms, Actually, what we see when people have seizures is a relatively small number of different seizure patterns. So somewhere in there, there is something that these microscale mechanisms are doing that gives rise to very similar responses at the large scale, in large-scale brain networks. And we know that seizures require these large-scale networks. We can see that in brain imaging. And we can infer it in terms of what we see in terms of behaviour during seizures. 
And we also know that seizures tend to emerge from normal brain activity and they emerge relatively abruptly and they tend to terminate relatively abruptly. And those processes of seizure onset and seizure offset are much quicker than changes that there might be in underlying neuronal machinery. You know, the, the number of neurons, the number of synapses and so on can't change at that time scale. So there is something about the network properties of the brain that allows seizures to emerge from that normal activity. Mm. And, and a lot of your review um, talks about using computational models um, to, to look at these dynamics and to look at these large-scale brain networks. So could you talk a little bit in more detail about those two areas and how they will work in, in these um, computational models, perhaps if we start with the dynamics? Yeah, so it's possible to explore experimental models and to see what kinds of activity a brain network or brain region can produce. But the extent to which you can explore the whole repertoire of activity is really quite constrained. Uh, the, the number of parameters that you can alter in that experimental system is really quite small. The number of ways in which you can observe it is quite small. At, at least in theory, you could create a computational model that captured all of the relevant structure and connectivity and all of the relevant ion channels and synaptic functions and so on. And you could then, in a, a computational system, you could kind of set that system into, into motion, into life almost, and to understand the, the kind of behaviours that it can exhibit. And if you can capture a system in a computer in that way, then the ability to alter the uh, parameters of the system, the ability to observe that system is pretty much unlimited. You can also think about um, how you might join up different scales of experimental modeling. So in experimental models, very often you're constrained in terms of the observation scale. So you might observe single neurons, or you might observe large populations of neurons, or you might observe whole brain activity. But it's very difficult to join up those different scales. It's quite difficult in computational models too, but you can at least start to build some of those links between different scales. And there is, of course, an absolutely fundamental advantage of computational models when it comes to studying human brain function, which is that we can't observe human brains in the way that we can experimental animal brains. Clearly, I, I can't stick lots of electrodes into a patient's brain. I can't then take that brain out and slice it up and study it in vitro. So those kinds of dynamic models have been very successful in, for example, replicating EEG phenomena that we see, have been quite successful in beginning to explain the different mechanisms of seizure onset and seizure termination that we might see. So those dynamic models are already having some impact in terms of how we understand human epilepsies. And what about the, the connectomics? How can this help? And what's been done in this area already? So dynamic models often look at the different regions of the brain as though they were completely uniform. So there might be a, a single region of cortex, a single region of thalamus connected up in a dynamic model, but there's no attempt to model the anatomy, no attempt to model the kind of widespread distributed activity of the brain. An alternative approach to modelling the brain is to 
examine its connectivity structure. And there's a rapidly emerging brain science which has become known as connectomics, which is trying to produce a description of the, uh, the, the underlying wiring diagram of the brain, essentially. And the principle is to look at how different brain regions are connected together. And this could be done using structural brain imaging, for example, using diffusion tensor imaging in MRI. Or this could be done with completely different techniques such as functional MRI or EEG or magnetoencephalography, where you can infer measures of connectivity between different brain regions. There's then a challenge to try to pull together some underlying measures of connectivity alongside the science of trying to create maps of connections in the brain there is also an emerging area where a technical graph theory is being used to make some descriptions of those connectivity patterns it allows us to pull out if you like some basic statistics of these very complex networks in the brain and we know already that in certain brain diseases, the overall connection principles seem to be different from normal subjects. And there's a, a little bit of evidence from, from some relatively recent studies in epilepsy that some of the underlying connectivity in some epilepsy disorders may be different from normal subjects. But the connectomics uh, implemented in that way is just simply about the description of static brain connections. So it's a, it's, a, it's a wiring diagram, but it isn't more than that. Whereas dynamics is about how these processes, if, if you kind of set them to life, how they then operate and what kind of activities they produce. Um, can we bring those together? Could you foresee that happening to give us a fuller picture? Yeah, exactly. So that, that's the, the really exciting area. And one of the leading paradigms of this is... Uh, a technique that's been called dynamic causal modelling. And this has emerged particularly from uh, a group based at UCL. We're quite keen to use some analogous ideas in the study of people with epilepsy. And the key thing that that will enable us to do is to understand whether epilepsy emerges simply as the result of abnormal dynamics in a particular brain region, or maybe even throughout the brain, or whether epilepsy, on the other hand, is simply the result of abnormal connectivity, but with normal underlying brain dynamics. So if you just wire up the brain wrongly, but the dynamics in each brain region are normal, it's still quite plausible that that could cause abnormal emergent activity in terms of seizures. Or it could be that it's a combination of those things. You need some brain regions with abnormal dynamics, and you need abnormal connectivity in order for a seizure to arise. And what are your ultimate goals for these approaches, I mean, in terms of treatment and classification? I mean, I know that's very difficult to answer, but you are suggesting a complete change in understanding, so I don't think it's completely unfair to ask. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's absolutely fair to ask that. One of the drawbacks of modelling studies in the brain is that often the model becomes the goal of the research. You know, can we produce a model that just simply replicates what we see in life? To me, that seems, um, well, potentially very interesting, but certainly not helpful for people with epilepsy. So what, what I expect and certainly hope will emerge from this science 
are some ways in which we can improve treatment. One of the things that I mentioned earlier is that in living systems, it's extremely difficult to explore the whole parameter space, certainly in experimental models, and it's really impossible in human subjects to make enough manipulations experimentally to understand everything about the system. In the clinical treatment of epilepsy, one of the substantial challenges is that about a third of people with epilepsy don't respond to their drug treatment. And often those people will end up trying one drug after another over a long period of time in order to find something that works. And in some instances, they may never find anything that works. One of the things that the model might do in this situation is to enable us to explore within the model what would be the best treatment for the patient to take. So we could aim that we could make some measurements in a patient, so some brain scans and EEGs. We could use those observations to build a patient-specific brain model. And we could then interrogate that model to see which treatment was likely to be most effective. And, you know, one could imagine if we had the modelling techniques set up and the models had strong predictive value, that this is something that one could actually do really quite easily. The other thing that, that I would expect this kind of modelling approach to do would be to tell us something about underlying brain mechanisms across the whole range of epilepsies. And it might enable us to say that there are particular classes of mechanisms that underpin certain kinds of epilepsy. And I would expect that we might find that this produces a classification of epilepsy that's quite different from what we think about now. Uh, a classification that's based on underlying mechanisms rather than on kind of gross observations that we can make clinically. Mark Richardson there. A few years ago, Alex Leff and colleagues from UCL developed a therapy website for patients with the visual impairment hemianopia. Now they've produced a diagnostic test that people can do themselves online at home, and I spoke to Alex about how well this works and how the whole package can help patients. So first off, could you tell me a bit about hemianopia? I mean, how common is it and how much of a problem is it for patients? Um, it's quite common. There are uh, lots of different causes. The commonest cause is stroke, um, but hemianopia also uh, is caused by head injury, probably the next most common, and uh, brain tumours or brain tumours that have had surgery for them. Just looking at stroke alone as the cause, a persistent hemianopia complicates stroke in about 10% of cases. So that means in the UK there's somewhere between 10 and 15,000 new cases of hemianopia per year and probably around eighty to 100,000 of people in the UK have got a hemianopia any one time. What a hemianopia is, is uh, it's nothing to do with the eyes, it's to do with the visual part of the brain, which is at the back of the brain. And as most people know, things are sort of switched around in the brain. So the left side of the brain looks after the right side of the world and vice versa. So if you've had a left-sided stroke at the back of the brain uh, and it affects the visual areas, um, you end up with what's called a right-sided hemianopia. What that means is that when you're looking straight ahead, stuff to the right is either missing or quite blurry. What the patients actually experience is not a blackness, but uh, an absence of vision. It's a bit like you can't see behind you at any one time, but you're not constantly aware of a blackness behind you. Unfortunately, unlike a lot of other 
impairments which are caused by stroke like weakness of the arm or leg and which can uh, be improved by therapy and can keep improving for many months and in many years and in some cases many decades unfortunately the visual system seems to have less plasticity mm. and most people get stuck at about six months basically it affects a lot of life because we're very dependent on vision for pretty much everything we do certainly reading is affected quite often and i'm particularly interested in that but um what is called visual search so finding things if you've got a busy desk or trying to find something in the fridge or when you go shopping you're using visual search all the time when you're walking down the street in order to avoid people um, make sure you don't get run over or hit by a cyclist or all of these things all the time your eyes are sort of uh, darting around taking in visual information and if you're missing information from one half of vision you're not quite so good at being alerted to problems that are occurring in that in that visual field right and why did you feel the need for a new diagnostic test well, the, the diagnostic test for hemianopia um, is widely available, so they're not just available in hospitals, they're also available in many opticians. But we wanted to provide a test that patients can access online, so this is all about patients being able to make the diagnosis, if you like, themselves. The uh, hemianopia test is really not is not just there on its own, it's part of uh, two therapy-based websites. But in order to work out if you're going to be suitable for the therapy um, you need to know if you've got a hemianopia or not so that's really what it's there for so it's not there to uh, replace any of the existing clinical tests which are, are very important mm. and obviously this is quite hard to describe in audio and, and listeners can always just go onto to your website and have a look you've got some really nice videos um, talking people through how the test actually works but could you briefly describe what it does there's nothing radical about the test. Um, it works like any of the other visual field tests. Basically, you, you're not allowed to make eye movements, so there's a little crosshair which uh, keeps flashing, so you look straight ahead. And then while you're looking at the little red crosshair, little dots appear to the left and to the right, and you can't predict where they're going to appear. Uh, and then after they've appeared, you get asked, um, what did you just see? And you're given four choices, and you have to decide which one you saw. Uh, and in that way, we quite quickly build up a picture of uh, what, people did or didn't see so we show more than one dot at a time so we might show four dots to the left and to the right up and down if you like like corners of a square and if someone's got a hemianopia they'll probably miss two of them the science that's in this gen mp paper that you've just had published um, compares your test to the humphrey automated visual field analyzer which you say is that the gold standard for diagnosing hemianopia um, you took 22 patients and got them to do both of the tests could you talk me through what you found although the um the read write and eye search visual field tests which are available online are designed to be done by patients at home we obviously did it in a more controlled environment so we we brought the patients in um, they used the website but while we were watching them um, and then they also had their visual fields measured on a normal clinical machine so there are lots of different machines but Humphrey is one of them we did a variety of tests of what are called criterion validity and all that criterion validity is 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 really saying does the new test work out or mimic what the gold standard test does and uh, the, the answer is that we found that it did um, certainly for the points that we wanted to test on the visual field um, it did an extremely good job there were a couple of points points on the visual field that we didn't cover so well and we've um, modified um, that so the latest version of the visual field test which is available on the iSearch website is a bit more sophisticated takes a bit longer and uh, covers up some of the weaknesses that we found from doing that bit of research and, and like you said this is part of a package which is all on the website and, and includes a lot of therapy could you just tell me a bit about the the therapeutic stuff that you've got on there what patients can actually use 
So obviously what one would like to do with the visual impairment that patients have got is just give them their vision back. But the current evidence is, unfortunately, there's no good ways of doing that. So this is what's called a strategy. So it doesn't improve vision. What it does do, though, is give them better use of their vision. So it improves their visual function without actually improving their vision. And the way this is done is by encouraging eye movements. So you move your eyes all the time. Everybody does. Move your eyes about three times a second when you're sampling a scene. And when you've got a hemianopia, um, you're less good at sampling the scene. You have to make extra eye movements. It basically takes you longer and you might miss some things out. Uh, there's uh, quite a lot of um, natural recovery, if you like. Your your brain soon gets used to the fact that you can't see and starts to work out ways of sampling the visual world a bit better. And what both of these programs do is sort of help that process along a bit quicker. Um, and for most people, they seem to benefit from, from both of the therapies. But the therapies are very specific. So for the read-write website, it induces a certain type of eye movement, which helps text reading. And then for the uh, eye search website, there's a different type of uh, eye movement for visual search. And the two don't cross over. There's been some nice work showing that um, when you train on one therapy, you don't get better at the other thing. Mm -hmm. But the individual therapies work for the for the task. And, and we see that a lot in, in human performance. You practice on one task, you get good at that, but it doesn't necessarily help you on other tasks. And you said earlier that you really want this to be aimed at patients but do you have any messages for clinicians with regard to all of this? Absolutely I mean the read-write website is a bit more specific so it tends to be for patients who have right homonymous hemianopias because we read English from left to right so if you've got a right-sided hemianopia you're more impaired um, and you know some people reading's not a big thing for them so th that perhaps has slightly less appeal although it's been out much longer and we've got a lot of experience and hundreds of patients have used it the iSearch website as I said is for visual search and most patients will have a problem with that so I think uh, that's likely to have higher appeal and really anybody with a hemianopia you can just direct them towards the websites um, all the tests that are taken on the website the individual patients uh, can access their own data uh, it's all kept on a secure server at UCL Obviously, I can see uh, the data when I, because we do science on it, so it's important for us to see the data to see if this stuff actually works. And certainly for the read-write website, we've been able to show um, in another recent publication that it does um, have a real-world effect. In other words, it improves reading speeds by around about 50%, which is not back to normal, um, but is a pretty good uh, effect size for a behavioural therapy. For the iSearch website, it's only just been launched, and um, you know we're still collecting data on that. Great. Well, it sounds like a really useful resource and, and free as well, I should say. Um, so, Alex, thanks very much for telling us more about it. OK, thank you very much. You can find links to both the ReadWrite and iSearch sites on the podcast page or, of course, in Alex's paper. And now appear back into JNMP's archive to 1958. Working at Queen Square with Roger Gilliatt, Tom Sears investigated the behaviour of sensory action potentials in patients with peripheral lesions, realising how useful these could be to assess patients. Here's how we got there. Well, I, I had a rather chequered history. Um, I had failed the um, 11 plus, believe it or not, and I'd gone to a school, and this was right at the beginning of the war, um, where we just had six teachers, no science whatsoever, no sixth form, and the research laboratories of the Wellcome Trust was in our local borough. And um, my mother had had a recommendation from a friend of her that it was a very good place to work. In fact, she was a bottle washer. And I went there as a lab boy at the age of 15, 
so I did a variety of studies. Uh, Otto Hutter, who became a very distinguished uh, professor, he showed me, in fact, how to bleed a rabbit to take a blood sample to measure the blood sugar, because we studied insulin. We also studied, and that's what I had to do, the early penicillin mold. Mm. And then I got called up. I did radar, yes, and then I resumed my studies. It was recommended that I went to Queen Square, who needed a, a basic neurophysiologist in the EEG department. And um, when did people start doing these uh, nerve conduction studies? I'm wondering how well established they were by the time you got to doing them. There had already been the general use of recording the electrical activity for muscles and with stimulation of the nerve to study nerve conduction velocity in a variety of diffuse peripheral nerve diseases about which relatively little was known. Ian Simpson, a young neurologist, uh, had this idea of studying nerve conduction through a, a local well-described clinical lesion with a diagnosis, namely the carpal tunnel syndrome. And I think that was a very important idea because to deduce things about conduction velocity, you need to know something about the normality of the nerve, the electrical normality of the nerve at the site of stimulation. You want to be able to study nerve conduction up to a point where there is a disease process and ideally beyond that process where the nerve may be quasi-normal or it may be severely abnormal as it would be if the nerve had degenerated distal to some lesion and then had regenerated. The important thing about when Roger Gilead became senior neurologist he wanted to apply this totally different technique to sensory nerve fibers. And the importance of doing it at Queen Square was there was a very distinguished um, clinical scientist, George Dawson, who was working in Carmichael's unit. George Dawson, by tapping um, the fingers, eliciting a jerk, or by electrically stimulating the peripheral nerves, he could show in these patients with myoclonus, uh, repeated shaking and exaggerated jerking of the limbs, he could show that he could record what then he introduced the term the cerebral evoked responses from the human scalp. Mm. A refinement of that later was to stimulate the nerves and record the nerve action potentials in the forearm by using then a technique called photographic superimposition. Tell me more about photographic superimposition then. This method relied on the fact that at the time of applying an electrical stimulus to a human peripheral nerve, the oscilloscope sweep was triggered and the spot moved across the oscilloscope. The idea was that if you turn the brilliance of the oscilloscope right down so that an individual trace wasn't visible, 
When you then superimpose successive stimuli and hence sweeps of the oscilloscope, then all those traces that were superimposed added in the photographic emulsion. Mm. It's called the latent image. It's one that's potentially there, but you can't see it on a single sweep. But as successive sweeps were added, that gave finally a trace. And it's a true average of the responses. And all the ones which are close to that average but not consistent just show as a kind of halo Mm -hmm. around the central trace. Many of the people, even in neurology or in neuroscience then, had worked on these techniques uh, which were very secret during the war. So the technology, the uh, instrumentation was very much available It was too expensive to buy, so many people in London would go to Tottenham Court Road where they could buy for a song um, the bits of of, of equipment. And then you always had an electrical or electronic and mechanical workshop in a department, an essential part of a department, Mm. and the bits and pieces would be put together to make these instruments. With your results um, from this paper, you showed that the the absence or, or the type of action potential that was produced could be of a, a diagnostic value. How were these results received? Did clinicians kind of pounce on them or was that not quite the response? Well, the results of any investigation like that were, were not diagnostic of the name of the disease process. What it showed you is that there was a circumscribed or a diffuse problem in nerve conduction in whatever process one had studied, and that would then support or deny a clinical diagnosis, rather in the same way an X-ray did or did not at the time, or later when biopsies became more common. Of course, the clinical diagnosis of petit mal which is these absence attacks in young children, Mm. was a pretty secure one. But the EEG uh, showing the classical spike and wave, three per second spike and wave, was very important to help um, the clinician uh, diagnose petit mal. Mm. Um, A frank convulsion would, of course, give the diagnosis of epilepsy of some some form or other. Um, At the time, our our technique and the one Ian Simpson used for motor, we we also did motor conduction studies in all these patients, but the emphasis was on the sensory nerve conduction. That was the novelty Mm. at the time, and it was the first application of the technique to study sensory nerve conduction in man uh, in terms of publication of um, you know such a paper so that was very rewarding at the time hmm. thanks there to tom sears all the papers we've discussed today are online for free at jnmp.bmj.com Next month, we'll be discussing surgery for unruptured intracranial aneurysms, how frontotemporal lobar degeneration affects taste, and Alan Emery's trip to the Appalachian Mountains, which led him to discover Emery-Dreyfus muscular dystrophy. Come back then. 
For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.